are listening to the Sports Daily. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. Got a good Tuesday show for you, a 4th of July show for you. Nonetheless, we're going to talk about the rest of NBA free agency as yesterday pretty much just talked about the Lakers and what the Suns did. Going to go over everything else. Also going to talk about, real briefly, Nathan's hot dog eating contest today because that's a big deal. I've got a player in the National League who might be rivaling what Shohei Otani is doing in the American League, although he's not a pitcher and he doesn't pitch, but he's hitting the crap out of the ball. We've got LeBron tweeting about one of my favorite movies of all time, and I've got some thoughts on it. We'll get to all that momentarily. All right, let's start talking NBA free agency And I mentioned this yesterday before we got into the Lakers and the Suns, mostly what they did, but I kind of brought it up at the end and basically kind of told you guys, look, there wasn't a lot of movement. A lot of people have signed contracts, but there wasn't a ton of movement. I mean, as of right now, the biggest name to sign a free agent contract with a different team is Fred Van Vliet. Signing for three years and what was it, 130 million? Is that what it was for Van Vliet? I can't find the numbers right now. Of course, when I need to find them, I can't find them. But that's probably the biggest contract that switched teams. But you know, you go to that first day. I mean, so many teams re-signed the guys that they needed to. Warriors signed re-signed Draymond for four years and 100 million dollars. Kyle Kuzma re-signs with the Wizards for four years, 102. Kobe White. Resigns a three-year, uh, a signed a three-year, thirty-three million-dollar deal with the Bulls. Um, Jeremy Grant resigned with the Portland Trailblazers for five years, one sixty. Kristaps Porzingis adds a two-year extension for sixty million to stay with the Celtics after he was just traded to them. Max Struess and George Niang both left their respective teams, the Heat and the Sixers, and went to the Cavaliers. Struess went for four years, sixty-four. Niang went for three years. And 26, Kyrie came back to the Mavericks for three years and 126. Chris Middleson comes back to the Bucks for three years and 102. Jakob Pertl stays with Toronto, four years, 80 million. Gabe Vincent left the Heat, three years, 33 million with the Lakers. Talked about that yesterday. That was one of the guys. But, I mean, Gabe Vincent isn't a, a superstar in this league. I'm just going over guys that change teams and – Yeah, Van Vliet, three years, 130 with the Houston Rockets. That's the biggest contract of anybody that changed teams. Desmond Bain re-signed with the Grizzlies for five years, 207. Sabonis re-signs with Sacramento. Dante DiVincenzo, he left four years, 50 million, but he's a role player. Jock Landale left. He went from the Suns to the Rockets for four years and 32. LaMelo Ball gets five years and 260 to re-up with the Hornets. Austin Reeves stays with the Lakers. We know this. D'Angelo Russell stayed with the Lakers. Um, Who else? Those are the biggest names, and everybody pretty much staying. Russell Westbrook stayed for for two years and $8 million with the Clippers. Oh, have the mighty have fallen. He's making $4 million a year, Russell Westbrook. Jordan Clarkson re-ups with Utah for three years, 55. So, yeah, the biggest name to switch teams – was Fred Van Vliet, who's definitely a good player, a solid NBA point guard. I don't know if he's an all-star. I think he got voted this past year, but I could be wrong. 
Good player. He's going to be the starting point guard for the Rockets, and he's probably going to average between 18 and 21 points for them. He's a really good player. But when that's the biggest name that switches teams in your offseason, I mean, you can't really say that, wow, what an NBA offseason we've had. Now, we kind of assume that James Harden's going to switch teams. Dame Lillard has come out and said, look, I want out. He's met with Portland, and he wants out. The problem with Dame is because he is so good and he has said, I want out and I want to go to the Heat, unless Portland is willing to just take less for what Dame is worth, if you're Portland, he's really putting you in a tough spot. Because if he says he wants to go to the Heat, the Heat's two best players are Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler. They're not coming back in the trade. So that means you're going to have to take a, a just a, a plethora of you know, a, a Kyle Lowry, Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero, and picks. Is that what Dame Lillard's worth? Absolutely not. Portland has said, we want superstars in return, or a superstar in return for Damian Lillard. The Heat can't offer that. So unless Portland relents and just says, screw it, let's give Dame what he wants and take back fucking 40 cents on the dollar for this trade, Portland's screwed. Now, they have a good young nucleus. They've got Scoot Henderson. they got Jeremy Grant. They've got some good players, Anthony Simons. They've got some good players to build around. They want to add another superstar with Dame leaving. So... I almost feel like if Dame goes to the Heat, you're going to have to get a third team involved unless Portland just relents and says, we got to get him out of here. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there, but the Heat do not have superstars to give back to Portland in a trade for Dame Lillard. I don't care if the Heat give them five first-round picks. It's not good enough because those picks aren't coming for two, three, five, seven years, some of those picks. It's like, if I'm trading Dame Lillard, I want something that's going to happen and help our team now. Tyler Hero will help the team. Will Duncan Robinson? I don't know. Role player off the bench? And then a bunch of picks? If they want a superstar, they're going to have to go a third-team route. And I think the only other two teams that even have a chance at Dame are the Sixers and the and the Nets. And I don't even know how that makes – I don't even know how that happens. Because I don't know who the Nets can give up that Portland's going to want that's a superstar. Their two best players are Cam Johnson and Mikael Bridges. I don't think they're giving them up in a trade. I think you're if you're if you're the Nets and you're trading for Dame Lillard, it's because you want to pair him with Mikael Bridges and Cam Johnson. Sixers? I mean, I could I, I don't know if he wants to go there. And if you're them. You're trading Tyrese Maxey to Portland. Well, you got Scoot Henderson. What do you need Tyrese Maxey for? So as much as Dame wants to leave and as much as Dame says, I want out, I want to trade, and as much as he says he wants to go to the Heat, I don't know if it's just such a done deal. And by the sec- and from the second he says, I want to go to the Heat, he immediately lowers the leverage that Portland has. Dame holds all the cards right now because he could just say, look, if you don't trade me, I'm just going to be unhappy and I'm going to be miserable you know, and then just be a jerk. So it's not like, yeah, we got to get rid of him. But the teams that are trading for Dame know that Dame wants to leave. So why would you offer your best offer and your the top of the line? Here's what we got to do. There's only a certain amount of teams he can even go to anyway. 
So it's just it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. I don't think it's a done deal he's going to the Heat. The problem is I don't know where else he's going outside of Philly or Brooklyn. And like I just went over those two teams, what's there for them to take in return? What is Portland going to take? Put it this way. Because Dame has already said what he has said, there's zero chance they're getting a fair trade in return. Portland is going to take it in the shorts in this trade. There's just no way they're getting equal value for Dame Lillard at this point. It's not happening. So what you're doing at Portland is you got to get as close to it as possible. You know, you got to get as close to, you know, dollar for dollar on this. And I'm not talking about money. I'm just talking about value. They're not going to get it. But do you get 70 cents on the dollar in return? 50 cents on the dollar? 30 cents on the dollar? They're going to lose this trade. They just got to get as much as they can. And they got a good young nucleus now with Scoot Henderson, Jeremy Grant, Anthony Simons. I think that's a good team to build around. If you bring in one more guy, are they going to win the NBA championship next year? Absolutely not. But they could be a playoff team, which is what they weren't this year. So I think you got to trade him if that's what he wants. You could say, like, well, call his bluff. It's very easy to say that sitting back and playing Monday morning quarterback saying, yeah, call his bluff. It's not going to happen. If he wants out, we all know what happens. Every player that is asked to be traded in the NBA gets traded. Unfortunately, it's turned into the players' league now, and this is what happens. doesn't matter what your contract says. You could sign a five-year deal and one year in say, I want out, and you will get traded. The players hold all the cards now. doesn't matter what your contract says. So going forward, this is the way it's run, and this is the way they have to at they have to kind of acquiesce to Dame, and they're going to trade him. It's just a matter of for what. Will they get dollar for dollar? No, but they better get as close to it as they can, or else their fans are going to be livid. Today is July 4th. I talked about it on my daily roundup. That means it's the Nathan's. Hot Dog Eating Championship at Coney Island today. I watch it every year. It is must-see TV for me. And I watch it because, well, it's disgusting. Um, I've never been a huge hot dog guy. I'll eat them at baseball games. But outside of baseball games, I don't really eat hot dogs. I really don't. Although, you know what? I had one at the Taylor Swift concert. (laughs) I did have one there because they didn't have a whole hell of a lot of food. I didn't feel like nachos. And they didn't have a lot of other options. So... But Joey Chestnut is a minus 4,000 favorite to win his 16th championship for hot dog eating. The question now just becomes, I mean, he's going to win. The question just becomes, does he beat his record of 73 hot dogs? And how many does he beat the second place finisher by? He usually wins by about 20 to 25 dogs in this thing. Maybe sometimes 15 or 18, 15 to 20, but... He's going to win. It's going to be disgusting to watch him win. But yet I'm glued to the TV every single 4th of July watching this charade play out. So, Joey, the fact that he's going to win 16 of the last 17, it's like, why does this guy have a better stomach than anybody else? Because it's not like you're actually eating it. It's literally just sliding down your esophagus. I don't know how they do it. They have a way where they open up their esophagus and open up their stomach to fit that much food because... You know, you sit down and you eat a hot dog at a baseball game. You can't eat 10. This guy's eating 73. So 
it's not actually eating. It's just ingesting, devouring. I don't know. You're not sitting there and like, oh, wow, this is a very tasty hot dog on this July 4th sunny day in Coney Island. No, it's just shoving something down your throat and it just sliding down your esophagus into a giant pool waiting with other hot dogs sitting there. 68, 69, 70, 71, 72. I mean, just the thought of 73 hot dogs in somebody's stomach. I don't even know how it's possible, but clearly it is. They have a way to expand their stomach. These guys are professional eaters. This is a professional eating league. We only get to see it once a year when ESPN televises this one, but there's professional eating leagues for most broccoli consumed, most mayonnaise consumed, French fries, asparagus, baked potatoes. They're all sorts of stuff. We just never see that stuff televised. So it's fascinating stuff. I'll be watching, and I'll probably be sick to my stomach while watching it. So I've talked about Shohei Otani a thousand times recently. You've heard me gush about him, the numbers that he's putting up. Well, there's a guy in the National League that is pretty much blowing doors on everybody else. Now, granted, he doesn't play both positions because we know only Otani does. But have you seen what Ronald Acuna Jr. for the Braves is doing to the National League in the hitting categories? Let me run down everything Ronald Acuna Jr. leads the National League in right now in hitting categories. Plate appearances, at-bats, runs, steals, total bases, extra base hits, times on base, weighted on base average, expected weighted on base average, Slugging percentage, OPS, adjusted OPS, weighted runs created, war, wins above replacement for batting, and wins above replacement for fielding, barrels, barrels per plate appearances, balls hit 95 miles per hour or more, average exit velocity, average home run distance, average throwing speed, and hardest throw speed. I mean, can we just pencil in Ronald Acuna and Shohei Otani as the MVPs in both leagues? We got to at this point, right? I mean, the Braves are just blowing doors on the whole league. They're 30 games over 500. they They've won 16 of their last 17 games. They got the best offensive player in the world on their team, in the National League at least. I mean, that is sickening that he wins, that he's leading in that many categories. Are you kidding me? I had no idea. Yet he doesn't lead in home runs. Who's leading in home runs in the National League? Why am I blanking on that? Anyway, um, we talked the other day about the perfect game that was thrown by, who threw it? Domingo Herman of the Yankees. And at the time he threw it, we said that's only 24th time in Major League history that a perfect game has been thrown. You know that there are nine feats that are more rare than a perfect game? Impress your friends with this one. You might want to go back and listen to this, or you can write it down as you listen to this. But So a perfect game has been thrown 24 times in MLB history. Four home runs in a game by a hitter. Only been done 18 times. We're going in reverse order here. Ten RBIs in a game by a hitter. It's only been done 16 times. Unassisted triple play, 15 times. How many times has a perfect game been lost on the last batter, the 27th batter? 13 times. 
two grand slams in the same game by the same batter 13 times. Three sacrifice flies in a game. That's weird. It's only been done 11 times. That doesn't seem like that's certainly it's not very many. That's one every 21,431 games played. Someone hits three sack flies in one game. 20 strikeouts by a pitcher in a nine-inning game. It's only been done five times. Three hits in one inning by a batter. It's only been done three times. And this one I'll never forget, and I'll tell you why in a second. There's only one player in the history of baseball that hit two grand slams in one inning. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It was Fernando Tatis of the St. Louis Cardinals. And not only did he hit two grand slams in one inning, he hit it off the same pitcher. Chanho Park. It was at Dodger Stadium. I was working in Sports Talk Radio in Los Angeles at the time. It was on a Friday night, and I was doing the Saturday morning show with Vic the Brick Jacobs. Anyone that knows LA Radio knows who Vic the Brick is. Vic the Brick and I did a remote radio broadcast from a McDonald's over by the Coliseum somewhere. And I remember it specifically because we were talking about the fact that Fernando Tatis hit two grand slams in one inning. How they left Channel Park in there after giving up one grand slam and then getting around to the same guy coming up with the bases loaded again, they didn't bother to take him out, is beyond me. But unbelievable. I'll never forget that. I can't believe I did that show the next day. Crazy. But, yeah, that's the only time it's happened in Major League history, and I'd be shocked if it happened again. And if it does, it's never happening against the same pitcher. There's no way a manager is going to leave in a pitcher <laughs> to do that, to get to get lit up for two grand slams in one inning. I don't know what the Dodgers were thinking that night. Maybe, I, I don't remember what inning it was. Maybe it was so early they didn't want to waste their bullpen. I don't know, but poor Chan Ho. Gives up one grand slam in the inning to Fernando Tatis. Eight more guys still come to the plate. He's getting raked around the yard. Here comes Tatis again with the bases loaded, and he's still in there, and Tatis hits another home run. <laughs> Bizarre. Here, and, and, and finally, we're going to end with this. This might have been my favorite tweet of the weekend. For whatever reason, LeBron James was watching Teen Wolf over the weekend. <laughs> you know me and Teen Wolf, one of my favorite movies of all time. Teen Wolf. Let me backtrack here for a second. If you didn't listen to the Daily Roundup today, you didn't hear me mention, yesterday was 38 years to the day that Back to the Future was released in theaters, July 3rd, 1985. Back to the Future is a movie that Michael J. Fox originally was not cast as Marty McFly for. It went to Eric Stoltz. They basically filmed pretty much the whole movie with Eric Stoltz in it, and the reviews, when everybody got to watch the film, said it's not working. Steven Spielberg didn't like him, didn't think it was funny enough, took his character too seriously. And so at the time, Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox, was filming Teen Wolf. And he was also doing Family Ties. So I think he got done with Teen Wolf. He was still doing Family Ties. And they said, why don't you film Family Ties during the day and you come to the studio and you film Back to the Future at night. And he did that for two months. So anyway... That's my Back to the Future story. But LeBron tweeted this on Thursday night. Sitting here watching Teen Wolf, the last basketball scene when he didn't go back to the Wolf is the funniest basketball I've ever seen. 
And why, how is old buddy standing under the rim at the end to win the game with free throws? <laughs> I mean, it's an age old question, LeBron. However, if that's the only issue that you have with Teen Wolf and what we saw in the basketball games, you might want to rewind and go watch a little bit more. Because did you see some of the fouls in that game? By the way, the guy that was standing under the basket was Mick, the villain of Teen Wolf. Mick, who dated Pamela Wells, who only liked Marty, I can call him Marty, who only liked Scott Howard, played by Michael J. Fox in the movie, when he became a wolf, which is totally bizarre unto itself. The fact that everybody was cool with the fact that a high school senior turned into a wolf <laughs> during a basketball game, and everyone was cool with it because he won them games and he was the best player on the team. Everyone was cool. They went, they went the, the game that had happened, they went and partied at the pizza place after the game. Everyone was all excited. People started showing up to the games. They started winning. They get to the championship game. They play against mixed team. But go watch some of those fouls in the game. Michael J. Fox is dribbling the ball up the court, and Mick has a 20-yard running start and just forearm shivers him in the face. <laughs> and it's just called a foul. If that happened in a real basketball game, Mick would have went to jail. <laughs> I, I could just run down the litany of things that are wrong with that movie, yet it was so good. One of my all-time, one of the all-time great bad movies out there but it's just so funny i mean i've talked about this movie with my friends a thousand times we quote the movie all the time give me a keg of beer and these i mean the amount of the amount of things that we've quoted from that movie over the years i've, I've lost track of but just funny to see lebron on a thursday night deciding to pop in teen wolf on tv and talk about, hey, man, what's wrong with this game? Why is there a guy standing under the basket with no time left on the clock during a basically a technical free throw? <laughs> it's like, LeBron, that's your issue with Teen Wolf? Not the fact that there was a wolf playing high school basketball and nobody cared? Not to mention that Pamela Wells, the hottest chick in school, was attracted to a wolf and had sex with the wolf during the theater after the after they had were practicing for their theater show, nobody was into. Nobody decided. Hey, wait a second. Why are we showing bestiality in 1986? <laughs> I mean, the, the 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 list of things. Mick standing under the basket in the last scene of the game when Michael J. Fox hits the two free throws. I'd say I'd rank about 20th in things that are wrong with that movie. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, just the all-time ultimate number one thing wrong with Teen Wolf. Why does nobody care that a human being turned into a wolf and played basketball? Nobody cared. You know the only guy that cared? Styles' friend. What was his name in the movie? I forget. He was scared of Scott when he turned into the wolf. That was it. He was the only guy that was like, hey, does anybody find this weird? Anybody care? <laughs> Anybody care? We got a wolf on the team. Anybody care? The wolf is having sex with our with our hot senior girls. <laughs> I fucking love Teen Wolf. Ugh. I love that LeBron tweeted about that. 
Anyway, thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Please follow in Apple Podcasts. Also, rate and review if you can. If you're interested, the Daily Roundup is up in the Reality Steve podcast feed. I'm going to have a column up recapping episode two of The Bachelorette last night. But thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great 4th of July. And remember, sports will always be the greatest reality show on television. See you!